Hey, let's do this. Okay. Good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to Tamper Tantrum um, here in Manchester, Cup North. Uh, thank you all very much for coming out and having a, a look at what we're going to do today. We've got a very uh, prestigious lineup today for our talks. Um, I drew the short straw, or so Steve thinks. He got to go to Asia and visit uh, China and South Korea and uh, Taipei, places like that. And I'm here in Manchester with you lot. But anyway, I'll uh, push on regardless. <laughs> I'm only joking. Uh, we've got a, a really great panel of people here talking today, so we're very privileged to have them. And uh, I want to kick on with uh, without further ado. Our first speaker is one of the great champions of coffee from uh, Guatemala and El Salvador. And I'm sure she'll tell you a lot more about her family history there. Um, and someone that I think uh, speaks very passionately about uh, the farmers and the coffee that's been grown in that part of the world. And we're enormously privileged to have her here today. So uh, without further ado, uh, from Coffee Bird, uh, Miss Martha Dalton. Thanks, Colin. Can everyone hear me? Yeah? Okay, cool. Um, thanks, Colin, and the team for inviting me to kick off uh, the first tam tamper tantrum at Cup North. I'm really excited to be here and even more excited to tell you why coffee farmers rock. So before I get into that, I'm going to introduce myself because there's a lot of new faces and um, I want to tell you a little bit about me and my story into coffee. So, um, so that's what we're gonna talk about today. Um, I represent the sixth generation of coffee farmers in Guatemala, and I represent the fifth generation of coffee farmers in El Salvador. And my story into coffee uh, started out as a young kid, and I would hear all these stories about how amazing it was to grow up um, on the coffee farm and I would hear stories about um, how exciting the harvest was how every year people would look forward to uh, the, the start of the harvest and um, the, the songs that were sung how actually my parents met on neighboring coffee farms and all the stories <laughs> um, all the stories I, am I yelling like is everyone can everyone hear me okay because a little loud Okay, cool. Um, but all the stories ended up uh, with, well, as soon as the, the war is over, we'll go back and um, you'll see. I don't know how much you guys know about the war, but it lasted forever. And um, yeah, so, <laughs> sorry, I get really excited. Um, so the real inspiration, though, behind um, me getting into coffee was uh, these stories inspired me, but what really inspired me was my grandmother. She got, uh, she was uh, the largest coffee producer in El Salvador at the time. Uh, she produced 40% of the coffee in El Salvador, and at the time it was extremely uh, productive country. And it wasn't so much the fact that she lost her lands, it was like the impact of people. So I have this little picture here, and um, on the far, on your far left, you'll see, um, a, a patio and lots of people on it, which meant a lot of work to a lot of people. Um, it meant that local hospitals and schools were fully functioning. And this was my first visit to the farm on the right. And um, initially what, what was happening uh, in the late 1970s was um, there was this agrarian reform happening and the idea behind um, 
taking farms away from people was to create co-ops and it was to educate people to how to grow coffee and it was to um, yeah educate people how to grow coffee and they were giving fully functioning farms that were worked for three generations and unfortunately the whole implementation of it kind of sucked and um, people were actually never taught how to grow coffee uh, they were never really given the right tools and um, what do you know corruption um, kind of crept up and this co-op actually um, instead of producing um, and producing coffee and keeping jobs locally um, got into a lot of debt and they never worked the farms um, they worked what they did was uh, lack of education these are the washing tanks this is part of the wet mill uh, these are this was on the right hand side a patio and um, the bricks uh, for the patio were sold um, coffee was ripped out and um, corn was grown instead and so it actually created um, a lot of like it it created a lot of poverty and also this area was where the civil war happened so um, and you can still tell because as you go from San Salvador to um, it's closer to Honduras um, you see the amount of guns the guns get bigger and bigger and bigger um, so it, it wasn't like there's all kinds of issues and so I wanted to get back into coffee crazily enough and I wanted to create a, a positive impact uh, into the supply chain and that has manifested in itself into a business I run with my mom called, um, called uh, Coffee Bird and we source high quality coffee. We're obsessed with it. We only work with people who um, are as passionate about growing and producing quality coffee and we only um, connect them with roasters who are as excited and passionate about um, sharing their stories and um, honoring the, their hard work and roasting really delicious coffee. So, um, so I've been in. So we started Coffee Bird about three and a half years ago, and I've. I just want to give you my perspective as to who farmers are before I tell you um, some of the traits that um, that I really admire, that I think that uh, coffee farmers, that make coffee farmers so special. So coffee farmers are as young as 20, as old as 95. They are um, as uneducated as dropped out of school at six to the most educated um, demographically. They, um, they are, we are the extremes and everything in between. Uh, we're extremely uh, poor to extremely wealthy. We're, um, we're all different, we're all different things. And the one thing we all have in common is uh, the passion for coffee. And every, um, every farmer um, honors their, their heritage by, um, trying to grow some amazing coffee and we're hoping to help them um, by, by giving them access to a market. Um, Alright, so enough about me and Coffee Bird. I just want to share um, about some amazing farmers. So um, this, first, uh, this first farmer I'm going to tell you about is someone, for me it inspires a lot of optimism. Um, 
All right, so this is Don Manuel. Uh, this is not his most recent selfie. This picture was taken in the 1860s. And he was the first farmer in Antigua, Guatemala. And the situation was this. It was 1860s. What the majority of farms of Guatemala were producing cochineal, uh, which created this, uh, this red natural dye. And the German industrialization <clears throat> removed the need for the world to rely on these little bugs. And there was a devastating recession throughout Guatemala. And um, Manuel, who happens to be my great-great-great-grandfather, um, had heard of coffee being grown in the Northeast by some Jesuit priests. And he decided, well, I'm gonna grow coffee. And everyone thought he was crazy. No one supported or encouraged him. But he, he was determined and he was uh, extremely optimistic um, about turning the situation around. And so he borrowed some land. Um, he borrowed some land, he got some seeds, and he started growing coffee. And with his first harvest, he came to London. And, and if it cost him a pound to produce coffee, he sold it for four, came back, second year, reinvested it, borrowed more land, grew more coffee, and by the third year, he was commissioned by the Guatemalan president to grow, um, to show smallholders in Antigua how to grow coffee. This is a tradition that's still, um, that this is a tradition that we still honor. Um, if you guys have heard or tasted Antigua coffee, it's pretty amazing, and it's all because of someone's extraordinary uh, vision and optimism and inability to be swayed by by people who didn't believe in him. And the funny thing was, was every, everyone told him he was crazy. And by the time he bought his first farm, he named it La Folie, which still um, exists, and uh, which in French means crazy, just to show everyone how crazy he was. And I thought this, this um, I started off with Don Manuel, not just because he's my great-great-grandfather, but I thought in terms of, you know, the specialty coffee um, industry and where we are throughout the UK, where, um, you know, some, some cities it's a little bit more advanced, and oftentimes when I'm speaking with people, they say, you just don't understand specialty coffee, it's just, it's just not London, or it's just not like wherever. And I guess I thought we could, um, like, sometimes when we feel like no one really gets specialty coffee, to um, stick with this guy's optimism and let's um, push the boat further and let's uh, expand the specialty, you know, the specialty coffee industry represents 1% of the whole coffee pie. Let's make it 2%. Um, so, so there. So the next story is an inspiring tale of persistence. This guy's awesome. Um, this guy is called Don Eliodoro. He um, is from Huevetenango, and he started his story into coffee um, was in about the 1940s. And he, um, Huevetenango is an area that today is still very inaccessible by roads. And um, back when he started um, into coffee, there were actually no roads. And the only way you could get around is by ox or by foot. So um, this man, um, his family background, he came from uh, very little resources. 
and he started into coffee by buying cherries. So he would walk three days to buy cherries and walk four days back with um, cherries and would bring them into the mill. And he did this for about three years. And by the third year, he realized there were some real opportunities in, um, in growing coffee. So he saved up and he bought his first farm called La Esperanza, which means hope. And um, he kicked off for, within his family. He brought his sons in. He wasn't able to uh, provide for them like a formal education, but he taught them everything he knew about coffee. And these, uh, Don Eliodoro, um, his farm and his son's farms have been very active in the cup of excellence and um, on both, uh, actually on the international scales. And I just thought um, the persistence that this man has in overcoming um, all of his challenges is a real, um, I think something that we could all uh, get inspired by. So I'm going to tell you. So when we're when we're talking about quality coffee, um, the difference between okay coffee and amazing stuff that you go wow is excellence. It's excellence in every single step. And um, and if you miss out on any of these parts. You, you miss out on the opportunity of producing some really amazing stuff, and you get, okay, so average average coffee. And, and that's fine, but I find average kind of boring. So I wanted to tell you about two of the farmers. So this is actually my grandmother I mentioned earlier, and um, I think she inspires excellence, because at 25, her dad died, and she um, took over her farm. So I don't know how many people, I hear sometimes, um, people talk about um, the lack of women in coffee, but I can tell you when she started in the 50s, uh, she was the only farmer, and she happened to be a pretty good one. So when she started, when her dad died, uh, she started, she took over the farms, and she actually increased her production level by five, by a multiple of five, and um, and as I mentioned, Guatemala was at the at the time at her time was very uh, well known for for its productivity per per acre. Um, so I think I mean she's kind of like the Beyonce of coffee, if I'm honest. A lot of you guys have heard of Ida Batle, and um, when before I got into coffee, this woman's a legend. Everyone talks about her in 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 such crazy ways that it's 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 really funny. Um, so excellence comes in all different forms. And another example is the Ventura family. And when I talk about every detail, these guys get involved from um, how they have, they're very rigid and very uh, detail oriented with how they select the seeds, how, um, how, how they select the seeds. So they, they select the seeds and then they, they have, they, they produce different varietals of coffee. And for example, for their Couture lot, they have um, kind of like a lab. And it's a one acre plot where they'll play around with different methods of pruning um, and playing around with production quality. And, and every varietal they have found has a different pruning technique. And, I, um, and it's just really, it's really fantastic to see how um, they use modern methods um, they've, they, they, they do everything from the most advanced and go back to the most old school traditional methods um, and just play around with 
uh, their, their natural microclimate to get the best out of their coffee. And um, it's, no, it's no accident that they produce some really um, good coffee. So another trait that all of the farmers that produce quality have is that they are determined beyond beyond everything. And I'm not sure if you guys, how much you guys are aware of what's happened in El Salvador, but El Salvador last year had a 80% reduction in, in, in production in, of their harvest because of leaf rust. Um, you can imagine, I've already told you that, or given you a hint that there's like a lot of, um, a lot of backstory political stuff that I'm not gonna go into, but farmers, this guy, Don Gustavo, he took the leaf rust as a, as, as an opportunity to be better. And um, he, I, was, I visited him last season, he also, had 80% less uh, production than he was expecting because of leaf rust. And he was struggling because a lot of, everyone blamed everything on leaf rust. But there's a reason that leaf rust, I mean, there is an element of nature and then there's controllables. And as farmers, you have to play, um, you know, figure out how much money you can invest and try to um, be as efficient as possible. So what I thought, um, I, I thought what was special about him is um, on the right hand side here I have I, I took a picture it's kind of a bad picture but but he he kind of has a manifesto of of the crisis and I'm just gonna translate the first um, two paragraphs it says let's not pretend that things change if we keep doing the same the crisis is the greatest blessing that can happen to people and countries because crisis brings progress and the creativity is born out of worries, like the day um, is arises from the night. And the crisis um, that is born from um, discoveries, uh, creativity, and great um, strategies. He who overcomes the crisis overcomes himself. And, and becomes a better person. And this attitude is something that is the difference why next season he is probably gonna have a lot more coffee than, than the average. And I think this kind of attitude of overcoming, um, we don't pity ourselves. We, we take every opportunity to make the best of the situation. And I think this is, um, this is really important and this is what makes my job so much fun because I get to meet so many amazing people. So that's it. Uh, if anyone has any questions, Colin, where are you? Okay, <laughs> thank you. Sorry, that's a bit loud. Well, well, that was fascinating. Um, thank you very much. So, uh, does anyone have any questions before you? I've got lots of questions, but if anyone out there has any questions they'd like to ask Marta? You? Yes? <laughs> well, you've just put your hand up, so I think you should ask a question right now. <laughs> Now, well, you've got five minutes to think of one, and I can come back to you. Um, so, um, Dale has a question. Dale has a question. Yeah. No, you can ask your question. Now. Yeah. Can it up to you? I'm interested in demographics. So you said that there are coffee farmers from all different age groups and genders and stuff. Is that changing? So in in Western farming, farmers are getting older significantly. 
over the last 50 years they've aged, like the average age used to be 30 and now it's 70. Is that changing in Guatemala and El Salvador? Uh, yeah, so, so um, a lot of, I don't know, it's really weird. Um, I'm one of 46 great-grandchildren, only two of us really like coffee. Uh, um, I, I, think, I think there's a combination. Um, the, the picture that I first showed you about that those are farmers, the girls like 20s. So some of the, um, the people, the new farmers that are in their 20s, they um, are really passionate and inspired by coffee, grew up on coffee farms, and are committed to um, uh, you know, keep, keep up with the tradition that was started in their families. But um, coffee farming is not, um, it sometimes has a negative stigma to it. And um, I think if you look at it in the traditional, like more commercial way, um, you can kind of understand why. Um, and I think this is why it's so important to uh, kind of rise above, focus on quality, and connect people to make actually coffee sustainable. Because no one likes losing money, right? You know? I'm going to ask a question. Yeah. So I've often wondered this. Um, I have a shop in Dublin. Uh, we spend an awful lot of time talking to customers about coffee, where it comes from, the farms, and all this kind of stuff. I have no idea how to farm coffee. I would be useless if I ever walked onto a coffee farm, and I don't really have much point of reference, but we still spend a lot of time communicating these things. When you come to like the UK or to you know mainland Europe or Ireland or places like that, does it ever? Does it frustrate you that like coffee shops still haven't grasped what it's all about yet, or do you think we're doing a good job with communicating what it's all about? Well, I I think what excites me most is the passion that everyone has of brewing coffee, um, and I think a lot of people do a really good job. My the only times that I get kind of frustrated is I'll give you an example. Do. So. so um, I, I met a barista who said, dude, you're from Guatemala, that's awesome, we should talk. And I was like, cool. Uh, and he was like, yeah, because like, I want to go down to Guatemala and like really teach producers how to grow coffee. And I was like, oh, you don't mean that, right? <laughs> so, so then we had a kind of like, like he came from like a good perspective, you know, like um, goodwill, but I don't think he realized um, that that could be like slightly arrogant. And actually producers do a really good job, but, of course, you're not perfect at everything, but let's let's find like probably on this side like cupping is really important and what people are looking for is extremely important and that can um, inspire or help the strategies of farmers to what to plant and grow. Do you know what I mean? So I think so. That it's establishing a feedback loop rather than giving. Yeah. It's not a dictatorial thing. So I've always been really interested to see if we can get a farmer to come into a shop and start telling a barista how to pull his shots and like, <laughs> kind of like, let them understand how it doesn't work the other way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do we have any questions out there? Yes, one here. Phil? Um, hi, it's, it's kind of to both of you really, um, just on what Colin said about getting feedback back to farmers. Is there any kind of structure in place to manage that cycle of feedback at the moment or is it relying on individuals like Colin and James and people like that and, and other roasters and people feeding back to you? Twitter. Well, uh, the 
I think it's an individual thing. Um, the supply chain can be very complicated. Um, currently, you could easily find 12 intermediaries between farmer and roaster. And um, the way uh, I run, my mom and I run our business is a little different because we actually care what, um, it, it's really important for us to understand um, what the people we're working with, what the roasters are looking for, and what their taste profile is. So we do um, give feedback, and um, farmers um, are working with us for two reasons. Uh, one, we have a reputation for paying well, but also they love the fact that we're sharing their stories, and the fact that they get so excited about it kind of makes you sad, but it's not a norm. And so they get really excited about um, you know, seeing their packages, their names on the packages, and and what other people are saying about their coffee. So we, like, I'll email the farmers I'm working with and give them an update from either cuppings or whatever I do, and, and vice versa. You mentioned your mother and yourself have a, a tendency to approach roasters that want to do a quality job. So you want to sell your coffee into places that will do a good job roasting the coffee and be a, a good representative of what you're trying to achieve. So, in a scenario where you come into contact with a roaster who you feel isn't going to shed your coffee in a nice light, how does that conversation go? Well, you know, it's... I'll tell you how it works with farmers, okay. right? It's very similar. There's a lot established by trust, and there's certain when we're trying to figure out... Well, we get a lot of access to different farmers through family and through word of mouth, but every so often, you need to do you just need to ask some questions. Because what you don't want to be working with is a drug dealer or a money launderer. And uh, Central America is the cocaine quarter to the states, right? So coffee is the number one uh, tool used for money laundering. And that's, it raised prices artificially this past year. So we try to understand, get their history and understanding of how they grew farm how they like got into coffee farming, how long they've had the farm. You know, if someone um, didn't have any farms and goes from having a hundred, it kind of raises some red flags. So in the same way uh, with roasters, we, you know, a lot of it's like the passion, it's just like a feeling, a, a feeling. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's how excited, you know, when I talked to Steve, first time I talked to Steve, he was almost crying. and. Up until last year, I almost cry every time I talk about coffee, so I was like, we're a match, you know? So, so I guess it's like the intangible. Yeah, I think a lot of roasters have that experience, and I know there's people here that work in wholesale, and sometimes like we, we wholesale coffee too, so you have a... Uh, uh, sometimes you, you get approached by people that want to buy the coffee, but for the wrong reasons. They just want to have the, the branding, and they're not going to do a jo good job. But, it's, it's something that comes all the way along the line. You have to manage that quality and the perception of it. Yeah. But it, it never really hits the shops, so that I hope there isn't. But I'm not sure there's coffee shops where people walk in and they go, what do you want out of this coffee? Like, are you going to appreciate this drink? Or am I going to sell this to you? you know? <laughs> but uh, everywhere along the chain before that, it has to be uh, invested in it. Yeah, and I guess it's understanding, like, from a consumer that goes to a specialty coffee shop, they want something delicious, and they've heard, they might not be, they, probably don't care about altitude, right? Um, they probably don't care a lot about a lot of things that, that you might care about, but it's just trying to like satisfy their needs and creating an environment. And I think what makes like a specialty coffee shop special is 
it's that, that feeling that it gives. That sometimes, like as a consumer off the street, you might not know, well, they do specialty, you know, but, yeah. but it's like every, it creates like the ethos around it. You yeah. know, some of um, the, the roasters we work with, they, they have a quality message and you peel back the layers you know, how they handle like their carbon footprint and their employees and staff. It's it's all like it's the same it's the same values and ethics that you yeah. apply to everything else. So I think that's what creates the experience. Yeah. I don't know. Do we have any more questions out there? No? I can keep asking questions. Okay. Tell me more about your grandmother. Oh. Well, so um, my favorite story and my mom I don't know if she's I didn't tell her that this was live streamed. Yeah, we're going to record it as well, so oh, she can okay. see it. Okay, so um, I was working in the city. Um, I have a finance background, and I worked for nine years before I got into coffee. And I made all my clients talking about coffee. And um, I went uh, to El Salvador to have dinner with the president of an insurance company. And the first thing he asked me was, is it true your grandmother used to wear a gun in her garter belt? And the ironic part was the last time I was in this restaurant was for her funeral and I had this vintage bag of hers that people used to say she used to go to a shop and say I want a gun that fits into this bag <laughs> and so I, I, um, I just started laughing and I was like well I can't really answer for her because she's not around but I can show you mine and, <laughs> and the guy was well behaved after that and I don't wear guns in my garter belt and I don't think my grandmother did either I do too, it's okay. <laughs> um, any more questions there before we, we ask Martin? Come on, you guys. No? No, no questions. No? I, I have another list here. I'm not just texting my mother here. So, <laughs> um, you mentioned as well about women in coffee. Yeah. And I know this is a topic that you're very strong on, and it's, it's becoming, I think, something that uh, a lot of people are talking more and more about. Uh, at farm level, like, uh, would you, do you think that there are enough women involved, or you'd like to see more women involved? In, and where else in the in the, the the chain do you think women need to have more influence? Um, you know, I, I really think we need to make it about people um, and good quality people. And um, as like, I'm part of the International Women Coffee Alliance um, in Guatemala, in El Salvador, and a lot of the women farmers that level there's there's like two tendencies many have inherited farms um, had no brothers and so inherited their farms and um, some of them have been uh, victims of like domestic abuse and left and only are working their farms um, so it's quite it's quite interesting so that's at farm level um, and at um, like within the farm um, sorters uh, at the sorting level um, women play a, a, a really good role. Naturally, we um, have more dexterity in our fingers. So if we're um, preparing a coffee to export with zero defects to Japan, um, we hand sort and we only have women involved. Mm. Um, but I, I think, I guess with uh, women in coffee, I just think um, we should um, not be, to be bold and just Say what you think, because oftentimes I hear a lot of women in coffee um, that are kind of too shy to tell their story and or share their opinion. And who cares if you're wrong? Yeah. You know, like usually we can all learn and grow from each other, right? Yeah. Like, so that's kind of my where I stand with women in coffee. That's not and then finally, um, 
to me, El Salvador seems like one of the most progressive places to grow coffee. Uh, and I think Guatemala too, and what we see is a lot of people uh, are doing different processing methods, they're more experimenting more, and definitely being a lot more engaging than other parts of the world. Um, what do you think the potential of coffee from El Salvador and Guatemala is, and how far away are we from seeing that potential? Um, I, I think, well, there's two things. Um, I'm actually really scared about the future of coffee in El Salvador. I, um, I don't know if you guys you know the story of Sri Lanka and how it lost coffee due to leaf rust. Yeah. And um, El Salvador is in a situation where we're recovering from an 80% loss. Um, we've been hit by, we had a drought this summer. We had a lot of political stuff. Uh, going on and um, that that actually uh, creates a lot of fear um, and we've we have this like spider attack um, that that the natural way of dealing with this spider is rain and there is no rain so it's impacting um, it's impacting the future I think for as long as we can um, ensure and ease the worry of farmers that they have a place in a market for their coffee, I think that is like the key of the future of coffee, both in El Salvador and Guatemala. In Guatemala, um, I commented on the situation before, but um, demographic pressures make it borderline crazy for you to keep having a farm because, I mean, there's some areas, the Ventura family is just on the outside of Guatemala City. The land value is extremely high. They're crazy. You know, like they have, pa their passion overcomes any, any like greed. Um, not that they would be greedy for selling, yeah. um, but those are the types of things um, that I think are important. And I think, um, you know, connecting as many um, people from this side with farmers plays like a, a, a critical part. Yeah, well, I think um, you really are doing an excellent job of that, and uh, to me, you're one of the leading lights in in that communicating that that, that gap between uh, farmers and and roasters and baristas. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Martha Dalton. Thank you.